This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. One of the wonderful aspects of our faith has been God's wisdom in placing people where he wants them to be. We've seen that down through the ages. When times are tough and the road seems rough, God raises someone, often from an unlikely selection, to smooth out the way for his will to be done. Oh, we've seen that over and over. There was Francis, the one-time playboy who gave up much to gain everything. There was Dominic, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and so many more. I think the interesting fact is that with God's help, so many people with so many varied backgrounds are remembered centuries later, and what they accomplished is as valid today as it was hundreds, if not more than a thousand years later. In a very true sense, they're timeless. Such was the case of Anthony Gazzilieri, born in the village of Bosco in the Piedmont area of Italy way back in January of 1504, where his father labored in his vineyard and took the grapes, pressing them into delicate wines. His wife worked hard, keeping the house neat and clean, but more importantly to her, teaching her children to listen to the word of God and to obey his commandments while at the same time never forgetting to pray. So young Anthony learned at an early age the importance of prayer or talking directly to God. After all, isn't that really what prayer is? Too bad that so many of us forget to do that. Well, Anthony had been named after St. Anthony of the Desert, who lived many years before in Egypt, and also after St. Anthony the Abbot. It wasn't unusual when Anthony was worried or had a problem that bothered him. He would go to his parish church and take his problems directly to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And the more he talked with Jesus, the more he wanted to know Jesus better. As he would set out to work in the vineyard with a close friend, they would joke about their futures and wondered if the two of them would ever have the opportunity of sipping the wines these young vines would one day produce. That was a question that only time could answer. Well, the work was hard, and one day Anthony paused briefly beneath the shade of a tree to catch his breath and and saw in the distance two men dressed entirely in white approaching him. As they came closer, he could tell they were religious, Dominicans. He had told Jesus he wanted to know him better. Was this in his mind an answer to his prayer? They asked direction, And as Anthony provided the answers, he blurted out a question. Is there some way I can become a religious brother? In a brief conversation with Anthony, they were impressed with his sincerity and decided that, yes, this boy is something special. They concluded that with Anthony's parents' approval, They would take him back to their monastery for schooling, and if that worked out, he would have the opportunity of becoming a religious brother. While his parents needed his help in the vineyards, they felt that just perhaps he had a calling to work in God's vineyards, so they agreed to let him go. This was a period in history that religious brothers and priests lived together in communities or monasteries. Now, 
In this period of history, the Franciscans and Dominicans would leave their communities and go out and preach the word of God directly to the people in their homes and villages. This fit perfectly with Anthony's desire to know God better, and as he did, he could tell others how they too could know and serve God. To accomplish and be part of this goal, Anthony buried himself in his studies. The words of the early church fathers were important, the teachings of Christ and the lives of his apostles, and at the same time he was learning Latin with a definite fluency at the price of hard work and diligent study. His superiors recognized his dedication and energy and allowed him to wear the white habit of a Dominican, plus an opportunity that had become a whispering dream or yearning. He would be sent to a novitiate, and if successful, he would become a brother. Well, burying himself in his studies, he was intent on creating his life to serve God to the very best of his abilities. Unfortunately, some had entered religious life at that time in a lax and half-hearted way, but he vowed to become a brother and an example that would lead to a renewal of complete adherence to the spiritual vows that would be taken, and he would do exactly that as he had made his profession as a brother at the age of just 17. In all modesty and humility, he wanted to give himself 100% to the faithful execution of his vows, as he took for his religious name that of Michael, the archangel who was the captain of the heavenly army. And so he became Brother Michael Gislieri, and he too would join a select group whose legacy would last forever in the annals of the church. Because of his intellect, his superior saw in him someone very special and sent him to the university for further studies. He achieved degrees in philosophy and theology. His work was so impressive that he was appointed to the position of professor of philosophy, which also required him to travel from one monastery to another, teaching as he went. And his style was so down-to-earth that it was easy to understand, and it motivated others to follow his example. Well, his efforts had created such wonderful results that his superiors ordered him to prepare for ordination to the holy priesthood, an honor that he felt was undeserved as well as feeling unworthy to become a priest. However, obedient to his vows, Brother Michael of Alexandria, as he was now known, was ordained in 1528. He was just 24 years old. It was suggested that he say his first Mass near his hometown. Well, the country was in turmoil at that time. These were trying times. When he arrived home, he found the church burned to the ground, his childhood home in ruins, Rome had been sacked, and the Foley Father himself was a prisoner of the emperor. So he said his first mass at the village of Sez with his family, whom he hadn't seen for ten long years, who were present at his first holy mass. He had loved being with his family, but after only a few days he felt it necessary to return to his religious community. 
but peace was not to follow him. A band of hungry, marauding soldiers appeared at the gate, ready to destroy the monastery and steal whatever food and rations were available there. The now Father Michael met them at the gate and invited them to enter the monastery where they would be treated as his guests. Somewhat bewildered, the Soldiers warily entered, and what little food that was present was shared, and the religious, led by Father Michael, who made every effort to provide hospitality and comfort to their guests. Not used to such a reception of kindness, the soldiers entered and remained there a whole month, with many not only joining Father Michael and the religious with meals, but also with their prayers as well. Soon after the first group left, a second group appeared with the same threats, and again Father Michael treated them with kindness and courtesy, and again the religious and the monastery was spared. If it were not the soldiers seeking food and aid, it was also the civilians whose lives had been disrupted by the civil wars of the day. None were ever turned away. Father Michael would always say, Our God is a God of sacrifice. He himself lived the way of suffering to show us how to sanctify hardship. Of course, our Michael of Alexandria was a living example of what he preached concerning the beauty and need for poverty and penance. His fame for poverty and sanctity was spreading long distances away from the monastery. He was called to Milan to provide spiritual direction to the governor, and so, as was his custom, he would walk the twenty miles in both directions, rosary in hand, praying as he went. But this was not unusual. When his services were needed, he would walk, often accompanied by another religious, offering sacrifices as they went. Well, adding to the difficulties, this was a time of heresies and challenges against the faith, a time known as the Inquisition, in which the church challenged those committing heresies and such against the faith, and also to combat books against the faith that were being smuggled into the country and distributed as challenge to the sacred teachings of, of the church. They preached false doctrines against the morals and doctrines of the faith. The Inquisition was a system of courts in which people who were suspected of spreading false doctrines would be challenged and encouraged to return to the faith. The leaders of the church created a position known as the Inquisitor, who would, in a way, be like a prosecuting attorney of our time with the exception that it was his responsibility to seek out the truth, and if the person was in fact spreading heresy, to encourage him to recant and return to the faith. Well, based on reputation for holiness and working to maintain the faith, there was a tremendous outpouring of recommendations that Father Michael of Alexandria was just the man for the job in the area of Como, quite close to the Italian Alps. When told of this decision, Father Michael immediately said, Oh, no! But 
after reflecting on his quick exclamation, he thought, God is asking me to offer him this sacrifice, and he would never be one to say no to God, and so, again on foot, he would be off to Como. While this would be the area from which he would serve, Father Michael would again travel by foot throughout the entire area wherever he was needed. Oh, there have been so many negative talks about the Inquisition, but Father Michael was a kind man, serving Almighty God, and and would do nothing that would not be fair to man and God. If he found an individual to be peddling false information, he would gently explain the facts of the faith, pointing out very carefully what was right and how the individual had either deliberately or accidentally misstated what was the truth. He would often say, if it were not for God's grace, I could easily have made the same mistake that you have made. But now your error belongs in the past. Your church, like her founder Christ, is ready to welcome you with loving forgiveness. Consequently, this caring man and gentle approach brought many straight back to the faith. But there were those financial futures often depended on the sale of bad books, and and though he was sometimes taunted, stoned, and threatened, he would never back away from his responsibility, no matter how dangerous the threats would be. In his prayers, it is written that he would pray, Lord, they're like the men who crucified you. These men really didn't know what they were doing either when they made money by spreading heresy and stoned me in the street. Forgive them and help me to help them. But there were those with powerful influence whose personal gain benefited from the heresies and were angry at Michael for threatening their income and power. And unfortunately, some sought the aid of a weak bishop who tried to silence Michael's efforts. Now, one of the powers Michaels had been given was that of excommunication, and so he excommunicated all those involved, including the bishop. Later, a breathless servant rushed up to him, warning him that an ambush had been waiting to capture him on the orders of the governor. They were on the path he had planned to take, so he changed his destination. And there was one place where he felt he had to go, and that was the holy city itself, Rome. This time he would ride a donkey and pray for success and for the soul of Pope Paul III, who had just passed away. After arriving in Rome, he presented his case to the cardinals in charge of the Inquisition, with several voicing the view that he had gone too far, to which he replied, Nothing can be too severe for those who try to get the civil government to stop the ministers of religion. Well, he won his point, and one of the cardinals, Cardinal Carafa, watched and listened carefully while being tremendously impressed with the knowledge, the fire, and integrity of this humble priest from Como. He was again sent back to Como, where he continued his work despite the threats and dangers that confronted him. He sought only what was right, and to teach the faith with truthfulness and accuracy despite the continuing threats and dangers confronting him. 
and back in Rome again, the general of the Inquisition died and new names were submitted to the cardinal in charge, Cardinal Carafa, who had someone else in mind, Michael of Alexandria. Father Michael was again summoned to Rome and assigned to live in the same building as the cardinal. He would visit the men in prison, and one of these was a dynamic preacher known as Sixtus of Siena, a young Jewish convert to the faith with great skills as an orator who could spellbound an audience. However, over time, perhaps in his zeal, his preaching became off track, so much so that it was considered heresy, and yet Sixtus clung to his beliefs. Father Michael, knowing the young man's abilities, spent painful time with him, going over each point of his heresies, showing him the errors of his teaching compared with the truths of the faith, and finally succeeded in putting him back on the right track, and then petitioned the Pope to allow him to return to the religious life. He could not return to the Franciscans because, as he claimed, I have disgraced their habit. So Michael used his influence, and Sixtus became a Dominican and one of the greatest scripture scholars of the century, stating publicly, publicly about Father Michael, and he would say about him, I owe not only my temporal welfare to that man, but also my eternal salvation. Well, as time passed, both Pope Julius III and his successor, Pope Marcellus II, passed away, and a new conclave was called to elect a successor to the chair of Peter. The, that man was Cardinal Carafa, who was now almost 80 years old and who chose the name Paul IV, who made no mention of continuing the commission. Father Michael was happy to congratulate the new pope who told him, in effect, that he would be his right hand, to which Michael replied, Your Holiness, please, let me remain a simple religious. I am not suited for high offices. Well, the new pope smiled and said, For the glory of God and for the salvation of souls, you must accept whatever position may be given you. Well, not long after that, the Pope named Michael a bishop of two small dioceses near the city of Rome, where he traveled on foot from parish to parish, ministering to all the people and their needs. He returned to Rome, seeking to become just a simple parish priest. But the Pope had other ideas. The now Bishop Michael was named a cardinal by the Pope who saw a great and holy contributor to the glory of God and of the Church. He chose to be called Michael Cardinal Alexandrian, and instead of living in a fine residence wearing the garb of cardinal, he continued wearing his Dominican habit and only that of cardinal for special religious occasions. He became the Pope's trusted advisor, and the Pope had complete confidence in him and followed his advice to the letter. And while he was so busy attending to the needs of the Pope and the Church, he started suffering great pains in his liver, but he kept pursuing his responsibilities without complaint. 
while Paul IV brought many reforms to the church, he was considered too strict, and upon his death in 1559, a milder man was elected to succeed him, taking the name of Pius IV. The new pope was highly criticized for naming his 21-year-old nephew to the post of Secretary of State, even though he was considered an outstanding student with great possibilities. His name was Charles Borromeo, who was destined to one day be known as St. Charles Borromeo. But that's a story for another time. Michael Cardinal Alexandrian was given a diocese near his old hometown. Pius reopened the Council of Trent in 1562, which had begun about 18 years earlier, and accomplished great good, which was a beautiful legacy of Pius IV, who died in 1565. Young Borromeo had proven his critics wrong and performed so brilliantly as Secretary of State that many believed he should be the new pope, but he had other thoughts. He felt in his heart whom God wanted. He was certain that he knew who God wanted as his successor of Peter, and that was the Holy Dominic, the Holy Dominican named Michael. And so on the night of January the 7th, 1566, while Michael was deep in prayer in his cell, Charles Borromeo and a few others announced the decision. The little boy who had left his home so many years ago to become a simple Dominican brother was chosen to become the Pope. To the world, the words were spoken, Habemus Papam, we have a Pope. He asked for all to pray for him as he became Pius V on January 17th, his 67th, 62nd birthday. Although he was sitting on the throne of Peter, he lived the life of a simple religious, eating the simplest of foods and sleeping on a straw mattress. Over the years ahead, Michael of Alexandria, or Pius V, would carry out the decrees of the Council of Trent and established many new monasteries where new religious would be trained to spread the word of God. The 40 hours devotion was started to make reparations for the sins committed against the will of God. And within a year, Rome was a new holy city brought about by Pius V, who many claimed that he followed so closely the examples of St. Leo and St. Gregory the Great. As Pope, he made many changes, doing away with some of the heavy taxes, revising jail laws that put poor debtors in jail, feeding, clothing the returning Christians who had been prisoners of the Turks, establishing laws that would protect merchants, at the same time, a plague took its toll on Rome, and he provided the money and care for the victims. He had a great love for those in poverty, and they returned the favor. In addition to the works of charity, he attended to the spiritual improvement of the populace with the development and preparation of four special books, which included the Catechism, the Summa, the Missal, and the Breviary. And while he tended to the spiritual needs of his flock, he also spent hours every day before the Eucharist seeking divine guidance. Perhaps 
one of the greatest problems facing his papacy was from the Turks. The leader of the Turkish forces had died and his son became drunk with power and was intent on conquering all of Europe and wiping out all traces of Christianity. The fewer of these attacks grew in intensity to the point where they controlled all of the Mediterranean Sea, and with such a foothold, they would soon be able to launch a killing attack on all of Europe. The Pope tried to recruit an army, but with little success. His plea felt mainly on deaf ears. People seem to ignore the calls for help and change until it reaches their own doorstep. And that's too bad, isn't it? Well, there were some Spanish, some Portuguese, and some Italians responding, but not enough to make a difference. The Pope was broken-hearted, and then he had an idea. It was there all the time. He sent out requests for prayer and the recitation of the rosary. People responded, and the power of the rosary was to be shown. A major sea battle was about to take to take place in the Bay of Lepanto, just off the Greek coast. The Christians were greatly outnumbered. There were 282 Turkish warships ready for battle with the lead Christian ship proudly displaying the white banner of the Pope and Our Lady's Rosary was prayed by all. The Pope was kneeling before the altar in Rome where he had spent the entire night praying for help. And as the battle started, the Turks had the upper hands, of course, but then suddenly a great wind blew across the sea with such force that the Turkish ships and only the Turkish ships were thrown against each other so violently that they were torn apart, part of them burning, until late afternoon there were only 30 Turkish ships remaining and they headed for home. As that happened, the Pope, a thousand miles away, said, Let us thank Almighty God that our army has gained a great victory over the Turks. The official word of the victory arrived three weeks later. The Battle of Lepanto had been won by prayer and the rosary with the help of Our Lady, and since then all popes have worn white in her honor. The Pope was to have an interesting meeting. An old peasant greeted the Pope with the phrase, Do you remember me? The Pope looked puzzled, and the man said, Remember when we were boys working together in the vineyard? We wondered if we would ever taste the wine. It was his childhood friend who brought with him a flask of the wine, and they sipped it together. Well, three months after the victory at Lepanto, the Pope was doubled up with pain. He called his friends and aides in, saying, My friends, I have no more business to take care of except my business with God, the account of which shall soon have to give him all of the deeds and words of my life, and it requires that I use all my powers to prepare for it. Sometime later, his lips moved deep in prayer, and then he kissed the feet of Christ on his crucifix and left this world. At that moment, hundreds of miles away, Pope Pius V, the former brother Michael, appeared to Teresa of Avila and promised to her to obtain heaven's favors on her great work. 
for the Carmelites. At that moment, she said, Do not be surprised to see me weeping. You, too, should weep with me, for today the church has lost her great shepherd. More than a century later, after many miracles attributed to his intercession, and having been investigated and accepted as accurate by the church, the child born as Anthony Gislieri and died as Pius V was canonized a saint. Pius V started life as a simple shepherd seeking only to serve God in his own quiet way and help others to know and to serve him too. And most of all, to love him with God always on his mind and in his heart. In our topsy-turvy world today with what's on our TV, in our living rooms, the screens at our movie theaters, and what we see in the world all about us. What can we learn from this holy man? And where is God in our lives? This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.